The word of the Lord came to me. What do, do you people mean by quoting the proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbour's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at a usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the Sovereign Lord. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbour's wife. He opposes the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at usury and takes excessive interest. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. But suppose this son, who has a son, who sees all the sins his father commits and, though he sees them, he does not do such things, he does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbour's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practised extortion, robbed his brother and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed, and keeps all my decrees, and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offences he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty and because of the sins he has committed he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? 
If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sins, he will die for it, but because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offences he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live, he will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from your offences. The sin will not be your downfall. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offences you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Thanks, Carl. Well, uh, I have to say I'm feeling a little enfeebled this morning. I feel like my head is about to explode. Uh, this passage I just have found tremendously difficult uh, to work through this week, so uh, I'm just going to take the time to pray again, uh, and maybe you'll join with me uh, as I pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that uh, you have spoken to us in your word. Lord, thank you that... Uh, A lot of your word is really simple, really easy to understand, uh, that the gospel is clear. And yet, Lord, uh, while there are shallows in your word, there's also things of great depth uh, and of great complexity that we need to wrestle with uh, and that we need to come to terms with. And Lord, we pray that as we wrestle with this passage this morning, that you would give us clarity, that you would bring, bring us to truth, that you would keep us from error. Lord, that you would bring us to see who you are and what it is that you call us to do. Lord, that you enable us to turn in repentance and to seek life from your hand. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Ezekiel for some time now and it's been a challenging book. It's been a a complex book. It's been a powerful book, I think you'll agree as well. It's It's been a confronting book. It confronts us in our sin. It confronts us not just in our individual sin, but in our corporate sin. There was the the sins that the people of Israel were doing together that they needed to repent from, they needed to turn away from. It was the sin of the people of Israel that God was uh, going to punish by sending them into exile. And yet here in chapter 18 we we begin to see uh, that there are questions being raised uh, about Uh, precisely about the the nature of who is guilty before God and and who is it? How does individual responsibility tie in with corporate responsibility? How do those two things fit together? How do they work? And that really is what Ezekiel chapter 18 is all about. It's about showing that while we're uh, we're responsible together as, as a community, more importantly we're responsible together as individuals before God. And the first half of Ezekiel 18 really is making that point. It might seem a kind of an obvious point to us, but that's the point, that a person, an individual, is responsible for the sins that they commit and that they're not responsible for the sins that other people commit. The chapter begins by Ezekiel quoting that uh, strange proverb, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And the point of that proverb was really just to say that 
the children suffer the consequences of their ancestors' sins. So if the fathers, it was the fathers that ate the sour grapes, it was the children's teeth who were set on edge. It was the children who suffered the displeasure of it. But God says to Ezekiel to tell the people, tell the people that's not the case, that's not true. Rather, verse 4, it is the soul who sins who will die. And then God goes on to explain how that is true with kind of uh, an illustration of three generations of fathers and sons. In the first case, there's this righteous man. Uh, He's righteous in the sense that he does what is just and right. He doesn't practice idolatry. He doesn't distort God's good intentions for sex. He doesn't oppress people. He pays back what he owes. He doesn't rob from people. In fact, he he positively gives his money away out of generosity. He doesn't extort people by charging huge interest on loans. He judges fairly. He doesn't show favouritism. He's committed to following God, in other words. And God says, that man is righteous and he will live. But now suppose that another person comes along. Suppose that that man has a son or, or a daughter, but that man has a child and that child is a bit, of a bit of a terror. This son is violent. He gives himself to idolatry. He, he determines his own boundaries for sex uh, rather than following what God has said. He oppresses the poor and needy rather than being generous. He robs. He doesn't give back what he's borrowed. He extorts people. He charges huge sums of interest for lending things to people. Will such a man live? God asks. And the answer is, no, he won't. He'll die for his sins. It doesn't matter what his father has done. It doesn't matter what his family has done before him. It doesn't matter how great the community is that he's living in. That man will die for his own sins. And yet suppose that man has a child, God says. Suppose that he has a child who sees the the horrible ways of his father, who sees the the horrible consequences of everything that his father has done and then that son decides for himself, no, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to trust God. And so he determines to tread this new path. He doesn't give himself to idolatry like his father did. He doesn't, uh, you know, follow the same sexual practices of his father but, but, but seeks out what God desires for him. He doesn't oppress people like his father did. He lends generously. He doesn't rob. He gives away his money to the poor and needy. He sets himself to follow God rather than to follow the practices and the ways that his father had followed. Will that man die because of the sin and the violence of his father? No, God says he'll live because he set himself to follow God and to trust God. It seems so peculiar, I think, to us that it would be hard to accept that. I mean, why would you write a whole chapter in the Bible about individual responsibility? Why would you spend all this time saying that you die for your own sins and not the sins of your family? But the people of Israel seem to find it very hard to believe. Look at verse 19. Why does the son not share in the guilt of his father? It's as though they're saying, I don't understand. I don't understand why it should be that the son shouldn't share in the guilt of his father. 
it's kind of hard to understand why they don't understand, but I, I think there's a few things going on here. At one level, the reason that the people couldn't understand what God was saying in Ezekiel 18 was because they couldn't accept responsibility for their own sins. Ezekiel, uh, God, through Ezekiel, is speaking uh, not just to the people in Jerusalem but to the people who'd already been deported into exile. So Ezekiel was already in exile along with Daniel and some of his friends are in Babylon uh, and God is speaking to these people and saying, don't think that the reason that you're in exile is just because of the sins that your parents committed. Don't think that the reason that you're in exile is only because they sinned, I was angry at them and now you're suffering the consequences. You're just as guilty as they are. Their present predicament was as much the result of their sin as it was the result of the sins of their fathers and their fathers before them. And even though uh, individual and individual responsibility uh, is a huge uh, kind of belief, I guess, in our society, nevertheless, we still find it so easy to shirk the responsibility for our sin onto other people, don't we? We so easily lay the blame on other people, lay the blame on other people for the consequences of our own sins. So we destroy relationships because of our anger and because of our bitterness and we say, it's not my fault. My father was an angry man and so I'm angry because my father was angry or I'm bitter because my mother was a bitter person or I'm lazy because, because my family is a lazy family. We so easily blame our families, so easily blame our culture as well. But God is saying to the people, no, it's not their fault, it's your fault, it's your responsibility. Your life, your direction doesn't come from them, it comes from you. You're responsible for your own life, your own sin, your own stance toward God. And yet at another level, there's something else going on as well. Because it is true, isn't it, that the people in Israel were suffering the effects of other people's sin. Bad kings in the history of Israel led to bad nations, led to God's judgement on the nation. And the righteous, as well as the unrighteous, suffered the consequences of that. Think here even in Ezekiel, uh, there were people going off into exile. Daniel, Daniel is already in, in exile in Babylon. You know, one of the great men of faith in the Old Testament. Wasn't he suffering the effects of other people's sin? What about the people who heard Ezekiel's message and repented and turned to God? and yet the judgment still came on Jerusalem. What about the people who repented and were slain when the armies came and decimated the city and the temple? Wouldn't they suffer the consequences of other people's sins? 
The individualism of our culture makes it hard for us to see the corporate effects of our sin uh, and the sin of others. At one level it's kind of obvious. Uh, So if you stop to think about it for a moment, it's it's obvious that we share the effects, the consequences of of other people's sins. No matter how much you trusted God in the Second World War, if you lived in London during the Blitzkrieg, uh, you were suffering the effects of sin in the world. You were suffering the effect of a nation being at war. You were suffering the effects of Hitler being a vicious maniac. Uh, If uh, your parent, uh, if a a parent has HIV uh, and they've contracted that through illicit sex, they might pass that on to their child. Their child suffers the consequences of the sins of their parent. The, the consequences of sins of parents are, are often visited on their children. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says to them that because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper that they were as a community suffering the consequences of that sin. They were suffering in some sense God's discipline. At the human level, we live with the effects of the sin of just two people, don't we? Adam and Eve fell into sin. We live with the consequences of their sin in the garden thousands of years ago. One moment in their lives affected all of our lives. Because they sinned, we die. Because they sinned, we're corrupted by sin. Because they sinned, we get sick. Because they sinned, The world is decaying because they sinned, work is difficult and and weeds fill the garden because they sinned, life is hard and painful. Because they sinned, the world is full of disasters and wars and rumours of wars. You see, writ large across every aspect of our world is the reality that we share in the effects of other people's sin. They suffer the consequences of our sin, we suffer the consequences of their sin. So in some sense the confusing issue is not why did Israel think that the effects of sin were corporate? That's not the hard question. The harder question is why do we think that sin doesn't have corporate effects? Why do we think that it's only an individual responsibility? Or more importantly, why did God say that it was an individual responsibility when transparently it seems that it wasn't? What's going on? I think it helps to realise that there's two ways of understanding the proverb. The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. At one level that's true. We suffer the consequences of other people's sin. We've seen that, haven't we? But the sense in which Israel, I think, was tempted to understand it was wrong. That is, we share the guilt for other people's sin. And God is saying, no, that's not true. You see, there's a difference between suffering the consequences of other people's sin and being found guilty of other people's sin. And God is saying at the end of the day you might suffer the consequences of other people's sin in this world but you don't share the guilt. You stand before me 
as an individual, righteous or unrighteous, guilty or not guilty. See, God is not just talking about their present reality, but he's also looking ahead to a future reality. He's saying, yes, there's a time at the present where you suffer the consequences of each other's sin, but a time is coming when that won't be the case anymore. You see that really clearly in Jeremiah 31. So this same proverb comes up in Jeremiah 31. They quote the proverb, the father's teeth are set on edge and the children... uh, What is it? No, what is it? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge and God says the time is coming when it won't be like that anymore. Everyone will die for his own sin and what does God go on to say? He goes on to talk about the new covenant. He says, behold, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with you. It won't be like the covenant in those days where they turned away from me and I turned away from them. But what will it be like? I'll write the law in their hearts. They shall be my people. Everyone will know the the Lord and I'll forgive their sins and remember their iniquities no more. You see, the answer to this proverb then is the new covenant in Christ Jesus. God is saying that even though at the moment it might look like justice is not being done, in the end it will be done and in the end it will be seen to be done. Because everyone will die for their own sins. And as you keep reading through the book of Ezekiel, those ideas of life and death that are are just kind of hinted at in this chapter begin to take on a, a deeper meaning, a deeper significance. Death begins to take on the hint of the idea of hell, that kind of permanent abode where those who've rejected God will will be forever. And life kind of takes on this incredible new possibility as in Ezekiel 37 that you know Ezekiel sees that valley of the dry bones and the, the resurrection to life of the people who were dead. So God is pushing this proverb into the future and saying the time is coming when justice will be done and justice will be seen to be done. Those who have followed me will live. Even though they've suffered the consequences of sin in this life, they will live. And those who've got away, seem to have got away scot-free in this life, they will die. The time is coming, says God, when everything will be put to right and justice will be done. Please don't misunderstand Uh, what is going on here. God isn't saying that a time is is coming when everyone will die for their own sins but but if you live before that time, tough luck. You know, it's it's not like the people in Israel, well they they had to live under a different system, you know, corporate responsibility and this side of Christ we live under individual responsibility. That's not the idea. The idea is is that the individual situation with God will be put right. God will put injustices right. God will restore the righteous people long dead who suffered because of the unrighteousness of others and he'll bring justice on the unrighteous who escaped the penalty for their perversions in this life. In other words, both they 
day in the Old Testament and us today might suffer the consequences of other people's sins, we suffer the consequences of our own sins too. But when Jesus comes again, all that injustice will be put right. What's the point? The point is this. At the end of the day, whatever it looks like in the world, whatever it looks like what is going on, whether we're getting away scot-free or, or suffering things that we don't think we deserve, at the end of the day, our responsibility is our responsibility toward God. Where do we stand? Who do we trust? Who are we following? Are we following Christ or are we not? So that's really the first half of the chapter. The first half of the chapter is to kind of wrestle with this idea of individual responsibility and to say uh, that that is the case. So not only does our family history have no bearing on our status, but in the second half of the chapter, uh, God goes on to show that not only does our family history have not, a, not have a relationship to our status before God, but, but our own history uh, doesn't have any bearing on our status before God either. So there are two more examples that are given in the second half of the chapter. First of all, God gives the example of a righteous person who turns away from sin. So in verse 21, But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live, he will not die. None of the offences he has committed will be remembered against him because of of the righteous things he has done, he will live. It kind of sounds, I don't know, it sounds a bit to me, it might sound a bit the same to you, it sounds like what God is asking for is absolute perfection if he turns away from all his sins. But, uh, but there's a few writers who I found helpful this week uh, and they say what God is talking about is allegiance and obligation rather than achievement. Uh, or perhaps... It doesn't mean moral perfection, one guy wrote, but it means moral commitment. Do you see the difference? See, what God is concerned about is not, in this case, he's talking about, not talking about absolute perfection, but he's talking about the directions of our life. So verse 23, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live. What God is interested in is in people repenting and turning away from sin and turning to him. Or verse 30 and 31, Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offences you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God calls on them to turn from sin and to get themselves a new heart and a new spirit. You might wonder how it is that you can do that. Where do you go to buy a new heart uh, or a new spirit? You know, what, what shop do you find a new heart or a new spirit in? But God has already given the people of Israel and us the answer. He said all the way back in chapter 11, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. Where do we go to find a new heart and a new spirit? We go to God to find it. And God is only too keen to provide. We find it in God, we receive it, 
from him, but God says we must turn away from sin and seek him in order to receive it. He's not just talking to the people out there, but he's talking to all of us. He's talking to the, to the people of God. We need a new heart and a new spirit. It's important to realise, I think, in that vein that repentance is more than just wanting to escape the judgement of God. It's more than just wanting to escape death. The model of repentance that Ezekiel is giving here uh, is a model of repentance which means turning from sin and seeking to commit ourselves to follow God. You see, we can't hang on to sin and follow God. It doesn't work. You can't keep sin and have God. You can't keep sin and have life. You might think to yourself that you've never really turned from sin to follow Jesus. Maybe you're trying to do that. You're trying to hold on to sin and to follow Christ. And maybe you're wondering, where do you go from here? Well, the extraordinary message of this chapter, remarkably, is it doesn't matter what you've been doing up until now, what matters is if you turn to Christ and turn from sin and trust in him. A past mired in sin has no relevance for our future with God if we turn from sin. Isn't that amazing? Not only does our family history have no bearing on our standing with God, but our own history has no bearing on our standing with God. Where else can you say that in life? You know, you apply for a job and you have to hand in a CV, you have to tell people your history, you have to tell them what you've done, what you haven't done. But God says, no, with me it doesn't work like that. Your past doesn't matter. What matters is that you turn to me and trust me and follow me. Well, if this chapter is full of that message of extraordinary grace, it's also a chapter full of extraordinary and serious warning. Not only is there here the possibility of repentance, there's also the possibility of apostasy, the possibility of turning from God back to sin. On the other side of the coin, Ezekiel says in verse 24, but if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? Answer, none of the righteous things he has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. Here is a shocking truth it is possible to turn from God back to sin. Ezekiel isn't talking about a single sin. He's not saying that if you fall into a sin that you're doomed forever to hell. He's not saying that if you die before you have a chance to confess that sin that you'll, that you'll uh, be locked away uh, out of the presence of God forever. Again, the point isn't perfection, but direction. He's not talking about falling into sin, but he's talking about 
turning away from following God to, to turning away and following and pursuing sin. There is a possibility that we can do that, that we can have followed God and turn back to sin. Judas betrayed Jesus. Demas, in love with the present world, deserted Paul. Littered through all the pages of the Bible are accounts of people who've turned from God back to sin. Littered through the pages of history are accounts of people who've turned from God back to sin. You can probably think of lots of examples of that, of friends that you've known who've walked away from the faith, family members you've known who've walked away from the faith. Earlier earlier in this year I had a very sobering experience. I was uh, driving my car. I was listening to a talk by Don Carson. It's always a sobering experience driving a car and listening to Don Carson. But it was a talk from the mid-90s and he was relating a story uh, how he had counselled a pastor and a friend of his Uh, after a respected elder in their church had deserted the gospel and run off with uh, another woman, deserted his own wife and run off with another woman. And Carson was talking about how he and this minister had to wrestle through the implications of that and and the difficulty of that. But what was, I think, most sobering of all, it was kind of a strange time warp experience, what was most sobering of all, was that I knew something that Don Carson of the mid-1990s didn't know. And that was that the very pastor that he was counselling within a handful of years would desert his ministry, desert his wife and run off with another man in the church. It was almost surreal and yet... It's the reality. We think that those who will become atheists, often they don't become atheists. They still claim to be Christians, many people. But the only Jesus that they're following is not the real Jesus, it's the Jesus of their imagination, the Jesus who embraces their sin rather than the Jesus who hates sin and who died to rid people of the perverse effects of sin. You might say, but doesn't God protect people? Doesn't doesn't Jesus say that all that the Father has given uh, will, will never be lost? Absolutely. But God keeps his people by telling them that they need to keep going, that they need to persevere in the faith. What God is saying is this, that your past doesn't matter. You can't trust your past. You need to trust God. You see, it's so easy to go, look at all the wonderful things that I've done in my life. Look at all the wonderful things that God has done in my life. I'll be safe in the future. But that isn't trusting in God, is it? It's just trusting in the past. And the past has no ability to enable us to persevere. It's only God who can make us to persevere. So the book of Hebrews is all about, the book of Hebrews is all about, you want to persevere? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Well, maybe you've turned away from God to follow sin. I don't know. But if that's you, don't trust in your past to save you, but also don't let your your past stop you from turning back to God. It doesn't matter how far down that road of apostasy and sin you've travelled, the path back to God is open this side of Jesus' return to judge the living and the dead. And the path is always the same. Turn to me, says God. Turn from all your evil ways and live. I spent uh, two years of my life, some years ago, two years of my life fearful, paralysed by fear, in fact, because I thought that I'd turned away from God and that he'd never take me back. What a waste of two years. Because God's message in this chapter is so clear, isn't it? That our past doesn't matter. That no matter what we've done, if we turn back to God, if we turn back to Christ, if we seek him, follow him, God receives us. Repent, says God. Turn away from all your offences. Then sin will not be your downfall. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful and liberating message that you do not hold us responsible for the things that other people do. And yet, Lord, you do hold us responsible for all the things that we do. And Lord, there are too many to count. Lord, we ask that you would enable us, each one, to turn to you in repentance and faith and to take you at your word that in Christ the past does not matter. It holds no sway over us because you hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Lord, we pray for those among us who might be following sin rather than following Christ. Lord, we ask that you might speak to them through your Holy Spirit and draw them to yourself. Lord, we ask that none of us would pursue death rather than life, sin rather than Christ. And Lord, help us each to believe and to take you at your word that you don't desire the death of anyone but you desire more than anything else that we would turn from our sinful ways and know you. Lord we also know that as we live in this world this side of Jesus' return we know that we do suffer the consequences of our own sin the consequences of other people's sin 
Lord, people suffer the consequences of our sins and we regret that. Lord, we ask that you would hasten that day when the world will be put right, when justice will be done and justice will be seen to be done through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.